Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, where podcasts going beyond the bats to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and also talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Glad to have you guys along. I'm your co-host, Brent Henson, and today we get to hear from a guest who is part of an unprecedented operation that uh, took down a man who at one time was responsible for distributing 20% of the world's heroin. Should be a fascinating story and one that may be eye-opening as well. But uh, before we bring him in, allow me to introduce our host. He is responsible for 100% of the fun here on the podcast. He is Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? I'm doing pretty good. We And just so our listeners know, we had a really bad storm blow through Michigan last night, and that, that took the old internet down. So we are recording this through a hotspot on an iPad. And uh, so if I sound different, we'll blame it on that. Well, I, you know, at least it's not dial-up. So that's, you know, you've got some high-powered stuff I, I miss dial-up. I, I like the sound. Yeah, I do listen, not. When you started hearing those clicks and pops and those noises, you knew the magic was about to happen. There was something to that, I nostalgic. guess. Yeah, but uh, I, I like the speed of yeah, what I've got Yeah, the speed, now. but nostalgia. You yeah. notice that the older we get, the more nostalgic you become? Uh, yeah, I guess that's there's some truth to that. That's kind of one of the reasons why I'm excited about the podcast today, because uh, I get to be a little bit nostalgic because our guest, uh, he and I have uh, a long history together. And uh, so I'm excited to talk to him. Of course, we've got it kind of pigeonholed into one particular incident, but a fascinating career. And I'm sure you'll you'll touch on um, multiple aspects from that career during the course of the episode. I'm excited to hear his story. So why don't you go ahead and introduce him and let's bring him aboard. All right. Our guest today has over 30 years of investigative experience in high-level domestic and international drug trafficking organizations. He served the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency for 20 years before moving on to the Oregon Department of Justice as an assistant special agent in charge of in the Criminal Justice Department back in 2019. In 2017, he was featured on CNN's Declassified Untold Stories of American Spies, talking about a subject we'll get into today, the role he played in taking down one of the most prolific heroin traffickers in the world. It is our pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Philip Kearney. Thanks for joining us today and uh, look forward to hearing your story. Certainly. Thank you for having me. Michael, it's good to reconnect it with you again. It is good to see you again, my friend. And and I hope I can call you a friend. I think we're at that stage. We can. For, for our listeners, why don't you tell, t- tell them where we met? And then we'll kind of talk about what that looked like. We met at the Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, as we both were students there in the late 80s and early 90s. Now, Phil, I don't know if you know this or not, but when I started college, uh, I was 16. I did a semester. I started halfway through a year and I did a semester. When I came back the next year, uh, they put me in the football dorm. And, and to be very clear, I'm I, was, I was not a football player. You may remember this guy. To right across the hallway from me uh, were two football players. Uh, one was Brian Wolfolk and his roommate was Eric Green. I remember both of them well. I'm sorry that you were placed in the football dorm. As a former football player at Liberty University, my apologies uh, for what you had to suffer living around us. <laughs> all, all, there, there was another the football player that happened to be on, on my hall, a guy named Mark Thomas. And yep. Mark, what, what I remember most about him was his smile and the fact that he loved coming down and partaking of the snacks that I had acquired. Not and surprised. Not surprised not at all. Surprised at all. But, but in addition to playing football, at LU. You also were a criminal justice major. And so you and I had several classes together. And that's where we kind of formed our common bond, uh, because we both were looking for a career in law enforcement. That is correct. Yep. I recall we also went on a, uh, a law enforcement related field trip together to a federal yes, prison. Yes, we did. And I have to throw this story out because it's, it's one of those things that stuck in my mind. Is we, we had a professor that was also a Lynchburg police officer, and he happened to show up late one day for class. And I don't remember if it was you, but uh, somebody, when he walked in, gave, he showed up late for class and somebody gave him a hard time about it. And he looked at him because they were a football player. And they said, yeah, because I apologize for that. Uh, I thought we had a, a jailbreak, but it turns out it was just a football team out for a run. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say this. As a proud graduate of the school, not once, not twice, but three times, I, I love what Liberty does and their support for the law enforcement profession. I, I think that it, 
it prepared me, I think, as well as I could have been prepared to start the career in law enforcement. Yeah, I completely agree with you. They they very much uh, love the first responder community and the football team, although maybe a little bit wilder than the rest of the student body when we were at Liberty, certainly towed the line and did a good job there. A bunch of good guys who really laid the foundation for where the program's at Absolutely. now. Absolutely. So I, I'm going to start off with you kind of like I do with most of my guests. How did you choose or, or what was it that drew you to law enforcement as a career? So my father was a police officer in Jacksonville, Florida for 47 years. I have two uncles who also retired police officers in in North Florida. I went off to Liberty thinking I was going to make it in the NFL. uh, Thanks to a pretty catastrophic injury in my sophomore year that did not transpire. So I decided to take my first uh, criminal justice course because honestly, I thought, well, this will really help my GPA. I essentially grew up at a police department and this will be an easy class and I can get an A. So I took the class and I fell in love with it. And I knew then that I was called into law enforcement. I called home and told my father that I'd chosen criminal justice as my major and I was going to be a police officer like him. And we lived in a, uh, in Liberty anyway, we lived in a, you know, very, um, not uptight, but, but a very, closed uh, society where, you know, the rules were important. And anyway, I called home and told him that I was going to get in law enforcement and the string of obscenities that was coming from the other end of the phone, because he, (laughs) he knew how difficult the job was going to be uh, going forward. So that's how I got into it. Really enjoyed my time there at Liberty. And when we graduated, my father came up for my graduation, took me to lunch uh, the day before. And I had gone through Uh, the hiring process with his department the second semester of my senior year. And I was ready to start the police academy. I had finished everything. I think we graduated like on a Thursday, maybe a Friday. And I was to start the police academy in Jacksonville, Florida on the following Monday. Well, while having lunch with him, he uh, he informed me that the city doctor that looked at my x-rays thought that I had spinal stenosis. So I was not going to be allowed to start the academy until I could see a specialist who could determine if I had an issue with my spine. Well, it took more than two weeks to get in to see the specialist. I had missed too much time at the academy. So they said, don't worry. Well, the, the specialist came back and said, no, you're perfectly fine. You're, you're healthy enough to be a police officer. So I'd missed too much time at the academy. And they said, don't worry. We have another class starting in about six weeks. Enjoy your summer. So I thought, well, this is perfect. You know, just finished four years of college live here in North Florida. The beach is close. I can really have some fun and and start the academy in in July. Well, they had a special election that summer and a new mayor was was brought in and the new mayor stopped hiring for fire department and police. So I was out of luck. There were no police academies starting. So I went to work part-time for that sheriff's office as bailiff, which I'd been doing previously. Uh, Every summer coming home from Liberty, I worked as as a bailiff. So I did that for about a year until the state of Florida opened up hiring with the Department of Corrections. The advantage to that was they would pay me a salary, which was better than what I was getting, and I would get all my law enforcement training for free. So I took that job sometime in 92. I worked at the Florida State Prison, where Ted Bundy, as well as 121 other men, had had died in the electric chair. And we would go work in the prison for three weeks and then go to training for three weeks. So while in the prison, I worked death row. I worked the max uh, jail inside when inmates would get in trouble. I did the visitations when all the family would come in. You had to search everybody thoroughly. So I got a lot of experience uh, working in the prison. Started to learn the the mind games that you see on the streets. They're the same games that are played in the prison. And it was, uh, it was quite advantageous for me. I had an opportunity to move to Utah for graduate school. So when I finished my training in Florida, I resigned from that job and moved to Salt Lake City, Utah for graduate school. Got out there in 93, fall of 93, started working at the University of Utah, taking classes there, and was quickly hired by the Salt Lake City Police Department uh, to be a police officer. So I started with Salt Lake City Police Department in June of 1994. That was an amazing agency at the time. Had an incredible experience working for them. I did patrol, graveyards. I was pretty active. Well, I was very... Aggressive is a, is a difficult term these days in law enforcement, but I was very aggressive. I not only responded to my calls, but if there wasn't anything happening, I was finding things. I was digging in and being very proactive and getting things done. 
my captain noticed it pretty quickly and he gave me an opportunity to move within his division from patrol to our street drug interdiction team. Now at this time in Salt Lake City, although it's the world headquarters for the Mormon church, about four blocks away from their headquarters was an open air drug market. At any time during the day, you'd have 75 to 150 traffickers, mostly folks who were in our country illegally that would walk the street and sell heroin or cocaine. Uh, cars would pull up, not even uh, not even park. They just stop on the side of the road. Someone will walk off the sidewalk, and within ten seconds, a a drug transaction had occurred, usually for twenty or forty dollars worth of, of product. So I I did that assignment for a year and a half. We could uh, we could be innovative. We could ride bicycles. We could walk around. We could go undercover, ride in our police vehicles, whatever. So I worked that for a year and a half and I was introduced to our undercover narcotics team as a result. So when an opening came available, uh, I put in for it and I was promoted to detective and, and went undercover for approximately three years. That was a great experience, a lot of fun. Growing up as a police officer's son, I was always very clean cut. So being able to grow out my beard and let my hair go into a ponytail and, and get earrings uh, and was really interesting and a lot of fun. You're talking about Salt Lake City and you're talking about this open air drug market in a city that most people, when they think about it, they think about it as, as a religious denominations capital. And one of our previous guests, Andy Oblad, also worked with Salt Lake City. And when he was on our podcast, he talked about being involved in an active shooter that took place at a mall. And then he was involved in an officer-involved shooting the day before he was set to retire. And I guess what I'm trying to bring out is that appearances that the public, the perspective that they often have of places, oh, that's a safe place. There's no crime there. People really don't have a good understanding of the underbelly of society in many ways. Would you agree with that? Yeah, most definitely. Um, I uh, I will heap praise on the state of Utah and Salt Lake City. It was a phenomenal place to work. In within the police department, we had a saying, and that was, "If people only knew what happened in the shadow of the temple." But these citizens really supported us. They were great to us. They wanted a clean city and a clean society there in Utah. So we were able to be police officers, which unfortunately is uh, not as common these days. But yes, every city, regardless of its size, uh, has its problems, no matter if it's the international headquarters for a religious organization or not. Uh, it was a great time. The five and a half years I spent with that police department was uh, it was a great time and it was very active. And I, I got a lot of experience as a result. You spend some time uh, with Salt Lake City. Then you made another career move. And what was that move? And then how did, did that come about? So one of my cases when I was undercover progressed past what uh, the Salt Lake City police chief wanted us to do with our city narcotic squad. So I was asked by my division captain to take it to the DEA and see if they'd be interested in the case because it was more of a long-term investigation with cartel links. So I did. I went over to the DEA, talked to them about the case. They were happy to take it, but they requested that I stayed and worked it with them. So when I went back to my captain and told him, he told me that'd be fine just so it didn't take too much of my time. So I would work my cases and I'd work with the DEA when I got an opportunity. And then they saw an opportunity because of my, uh, my education and my experience. They saw an opportunity to start recruiting me. I had no intent of leaving Salt Lake City Police Department until they explained to me how much money they made. And then I asked them, how do I get an application? <laughs> the, the pay for federal agents was quite a bit better than what Salt Lake City was paying. So it was about a two-year process to get hired by them, but I, I went through it and was hired in the summer of 99, DEA's basic agent class 134. So I went from the, the very nice climate in the summer in Utah to the heat of Quantico, Virginia in July of 99 and started the, uh, I think it was a 16-week academy with the DEA. It was a lot of fun. The academy was great. It was the first time that I went to an academy in which you lived there. So we belonged to the DEA 24 hours a day for the 16 weeks we were there. It was incredibly physically demanding, which I loved. Uh, by the time I was done, they had beaten us half to death. And when you were done and walked across the stage, you knew that you had really earned it. So it was a great time. Went back to Salt Lake City for a couple months until I could get my house sold. Uh, was un Well, fortunately or unfortunately, was in a uh, shooting, a search warrant in a meth lab. Had a suspect that was trying to kill one of our agents, so I, I was forced to shoot. 
And then a few weeks later, my house was sold. DEA packed us up and moved us to Wilmington, North Carolina. You're a brand new agent. You come from a law enforcement family, uh, but was there anybody in your family that was kind of second guessing your choice of DEA? Brand new agent, go back and, hey, I'm just here because I'm waiting to sell my house and get involved in the shooting. Was anybody coming to you say, hey, I'm not sure this was a great career move? No, actually, it was just the opposite. My uh, my father and my uncles were extremely supportive. Uh, they knew that um, my experience with DEA would probably be, would far surpass what I could find at, uh, with Salt Lake City. It was it was probably me. Well, it definitely was me that second guessed my career move after moving to North Carolina. <laughs> when I was, when I moved to, and, and that's not a slight on the state of North Carolina. I'll explain in a minute. But when, when I came back from the DEA Academy and was in Utah, there were a bunch of very young agents in Salt Lake City, as well as some experienced agents, but young agents who had all been cops around the nation. And it was like being on a tactical team. We were doing three and four search warrants a week, and it was a blast. I had so much fun. And then I pack up and move to Wilmington, North Carolina. Well, and I should say the office in Salt Lake City was brand new. It was in a really desirable location in the city. We overlooked downtown. We had our own parking. It was secure. The building was huge, and it was fantastic. Well, then I packed up and moved to North Carolina. I walked into my office, a very historic building on the Cape Fear River, walked into the office for the first day and I had my big black tactical bag, you know, expecting to be doing search warrants like I was in Utah. I walk in the very first day and I open the door and I look at this office and it reminded me of the set of the old TV show, Barney Miller. The (laughs) furniture was falling apart. The paint was peeling off the walls. Uh, It was just a dilapidated mess. And the senior agent who was sitting there, who became a good friend of mine later, he looked at me and he asked what the bag was that I had over my shoulder. And I told him it was my tactical gear. He laughed and he said, you're not going to need that here. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, oh boy, what have I gotten myself into? So I sat around for a month, tried to be a DEA agent, but realized that office was uh, not functioning the way the DEA I was accustomed to functioned. Uh, and I was very, very dismayed. I even called my old captain with the police department and he assured me I could have my job back. Well, lucky for me, we got a new boss. Uh, we were without a boss when I first got there, but we got a new boss. He was uh, uh, young. He had 13 years on with DEA. It had been, uh, his time had been in, in New York. He had done amazing things in his career already. This was his first time being a supervisor. I was fortunate that he had amazing supervisors in his past. So he came in. He had been an instructor for a short time at the DEA Academy, so I knew him just a little bit. He came in, and I went to his office shortly after he arrived, and and I told him, hey, I'm sorry, but this job's not for me. Uh, Salt Lake City Police Department's assured me I can go back. So I'm going to resign here pretty soon and move back because this is just not what I want. He listened to me and and heard why I didn't like it. And he said, we're going to change everything. We're going to make this a great office. And he did. His name is Jonathan Wilson. Goes by Jethro. Everybody knows him as Jethro. Uh, And he was an amazing supervisor that really started my career off on the right foot. He, uh, He came in. He found the strengths of the two senior agents that were there. And he told them, look, you're going to have to watch over this kid. Uh, we're going to do things that you haven't done here in a while. We're not going to be a, an office that sits back and waits for the state and locals to come to us. We're going to go to their meetings. We're going to find the best cases. And we're going to show the folks here what DEA can really do. We're going to be part of the team instead of just sitting back and waiting. So it turned out to be an amazing five years. I had a fantastic time there. It's an area of the country which most DEA agents would love to go and retire. But it turned out to be my first assignment. I wrote the first wiretap. That office had had in about 16 years. I uh, had a fantastic time doing that. And then I got a, a relatively early promotion to senior special agent and competed for a job about five hours north of where I was in Northern Virginia. It was a job in the bilateral case investigation unit. And that was a very select group of agents out of approximately 5,000 DEA agents. There were six people in that group. And all they did was go after cartel heads based outside of the United States under the U.S. law, Title 21 U.S.C. 959. And 959 had two clauses in it that we used. People had to have the intent 
to get their drugs to the United States or the knowledge that their drugs were coming to the U.S. And if they had either of those, then we could focus an investigation on them as if they were living in the U.S. So when I reported to the Special Operations Division to be part of the bilateral investigative unit, I believed that I was going to be going to South America and going after Colombian cartels because that's what the, the unit had been doing for the most part. So I moved my family five hours north, bought the most expensive home to date that I've ever had to buy. <laughs> and I was, I was still 26 miles away from my office. Went to the office the first day. They let me kind of settle in, found my desk, met everybody. Day number two, I knew I had a big meeting to attend. So I went upstairs with a special agent in charge, a, a historic figure who's all over the news these days, uh, Derek Maltz was um, in his office. I walked in and there were probably 14 people in the office for this meeting. And I was by far the lowest ranking person in the, uh, in the meeting. And I sat down to listen and I started hearing them talk about historical trafficking routes from Pakistan through Afghanistan into Iraq, up into Turkey, how the CIA, the DIA, US military had a source network that they developed through Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan, the amounts of heroin that were coming out of Afghanistan. So probably 25 minutes into this meeting where I had said nothing, I'm just listening to people. I realized, holy crap, I'm not going to South America. They want to send me to Afghanistan. I want to make sure our listeners understand this right here, uh, because we recently had an episode where we talked about human trafficking. And one of the, the, the problems that they run into in those investigations is that a lot of these servers, the, these platforms that are hosting these sites where people can go and participate in this thing, they've moved offshore because it's we have trouble investigating it. But it sounds like that it, when it came to the drug trade, that we were much more proactive and much further ahead of the time by having these things say, listen, if you're bringing it here, if you're sending it here and you know what's happening and you're trying to get it here, then we can take the investigations beyond the borders of America. Because if we wait until it gets here, it's really too late, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct. Congress had done the right thing years before and they had acted and they had uh, put this 959 law into place. Now, about a year and a half later, they also would act and put together another law that really uh, made my, my job in Afghanistan and around the world easier. They put into place a narco terror law, 960. And that law said that if you are selling drugs around the world and you supply anything of pecuniary value, don't ask me to spell that word, to a terrorist organization, then you are guilty of narco terror. Now, they wrote the law relatively broad, meaning that if someone was in Thailand and they were selling heroin, but they bought a, a bag of rice for a Thai-related uh, terrorist organization, well, that's pecuniary value. You're feeding terrorists, so you're now guilty of narco-terror under U.S. laws. So we use that quite a bit in Afghanistan starting in, in 2006 when it went into effect. Now, you still have to have some sort of cooperation with the different countries as far as jurisdiction is concerned, correct? Most definitely, yes. So I arrived in, in uh, Virginia, attended that meeting, realized, oh man, I'm not going after Colombian cartels. I'm going to war. The war in Afghanistan was raging at the time, Operation Enduring Freedom. I looked back, I'm not exactly sure how long, but I think it was three weeks after moving to Virginia, getting my kids enrolled in school, moving the stuff into the house. Three weeks later, I boarded a plane and went from Dulles International to Europe. I think it was London, London to Paris, Paris to Istanbul, Istanbul to Dubai. There were no short routes to get to Dubai at that time. We're talking at least 16 hours of travel just to get to Dubai. And from Dubai, you could catch a plane to Afghanistan. Well, I got to Dubai. Uh, my, my supervisor, Brian Dodd, was with me. He wanted to make sure on my first trip that I could navigate uh, international travel. Very nice man. Very helpful in moving me forward in these cases. So we're there together. Our local uh, DA office, there were, it was a two-man office in Dubai. They met us at the airport and said, we got good news and bad news. Bad news is your plane going to Dubai is having mechanical problems. It's not going to leave for three days. 
good news is your uh, your per diem here in Dubai is like a thousand dollars a day. So enjoy yourself Whoa. while you're here. <laughs> so it was a very large per diem because it was expensive there. So we needed some more supplies if we're going to hang on Dubai for a couple of days because all of our everything we brought was to endure the harshness of uh, the upcoming winter in Afghanistan and being in war. So he took us to a local. I think the place was called Care For. I think it's like a Walmart, but uh, a French company. Uh, Brian Dodd, my supervisor, went one way getting some supplies. I went the other way. We came back and we paid for our stuff and we were taken back to the hotel. And the hotel was just uh, very grandiose. And we agreed that uh, we'd meet down by the pool in in a few minutes and just enjoy being in Dubai since we're going to war in a few days. So I show up at the pool and Brian shows up. Wouldn't you know it? without being together in the store, completely separately shopping, we purchased the same bathing suits, but the (laughs) same color. (laughs) And so they treated us like we were a couple, um, which, uh, was very, was very funny. We, uh, we hung out in Dubai for a couple days and then we finally, uh, were able to board the plane to Afghanistan. So, the flights from Dubai to Afghanistan, the companies that, that ran these flights, they came up in many investigations later. And the planes were not the best planes ever. They were very old. They never would have uh, been allowed to fly in the United States. I'm boarding this plane and I'm looking at the condition of the plane and I thought, I'm not even going to make it to Afghanistan. This thing's not going to uh, make it. A- so made it there the first day or the first trip and as I go to exit the plane, an explosion occurs at the far end of the airport. And then I see the Afghan soldiers, very interesting culture shock. Uh, the Afghan soldiers in full uniform with rifles were holding hands, just not something that you would see every day in the United States. So big culture shock. So I was on the ground there for about three weeks. Uh, we lived in steel containers we would travel around Kabul. We met with different political figures, really trying to get the lay of the land. And I did this trip well over four years. I deployed 10 different times. But for the first year, I probably made three or four trips to Afghanistan, uh, long-term trips, and getting to know people. Uh, and I also, in the four years, worked in 15 other countries where Afghan heroin was going, trying to gain the support of other nations uh, in our investigations. So the first year, we're trying to figure out really how we wanted to to do these cases. Let me back up just a second and tell you why DEA decided to go to Afghanistan. Around 80% of the world's heroin comes from Afghanistan. Yet a very small amount of heroin seized in the United States comes from Afghanistan. So what is our purpose there? If we don't have a lot of Afghan heroin coming to the United States, why were we going there to work it? Well, these traffickers were making so much money, billions of dollars selling heroin around the world. And then they were supplying money. Our estimate was 25 to 35% of the money they made. They would supply it to terrorist organizations, to Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, the Haqqani Network, and others. And of course, those terrorist organizations were waging war around the world against the United States and killing our troops in Afghanistan. So DEA's mission was to save U.S. service personnel in Afghanistan and U.S. citizens around the world by going after these folks who were assisting terrorist organizations. So the first year, it took a while to come up with a plan. Other than my supervisor, I was essentially on my own working with members of the Kabul country office. So that was our office based in Kabul, Afghanistan. When I first arrived there in 2005, it was the old embassy, the embassy that we had abandoned when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. And it honestly was like walking into a museum. Nothing had changed since uh, we abandoned that uh, embassy in in the early 80s, whenever the Soviets came in. I had to get a lay of the land. I had to figure out who the biggest traffickers were. I spoke with military, CIA, anybody who had been there longer than me, trying to figure out uh, who I should target, who were the big players. And one thing that kept coming up, no matter who I talked to and no matter who I interviewed, that first year I may focus my investigations on, on someone, that someone always had some connection to a man named Haji Bacho Ghoul. 
So it took me a little while to, to realize it, but he was, he was kind of the man in the shadows. Uh, and he turned out to be the man who was the big guy. Everybody worked for Haji. Haji had a distribution organization that was well-connected around the world. He was supplying heroin all around the world. One of the first breaks I got was information that came out of our Tokyo country office that they had Haji Bacho entering Japan and working with people in Japan. So I flew to Tokyo, worked with our office there, met with the national police and uh, some of the local police agencies. And I got to tell you, that was a lot of fun working with the Japanese police. It was very enlightening also. A country that was so technologically advanced, you essentially don't go anywhere in Tokyo or the surrounding areas without being recorded in some manner. Yet their laws were almost archaic compared to ours. You could not make a drug investigation, couldn't make a drug case without seeing a hand-to-hand buy. There was no conspiracy or anything that we would utilize in the United States to build a case. Yet, they had all this intelligence from their video and comings and goings of Haji and the people who worked with him. So I was able to gather all that after building trust with them. I was able to gather all that uh, and bring it in as evidence for our case. A quick funny story. My second visit there, I took a U.S. prosecutor with me, Matt Stiglitz, phenomenal prosecutor, did great work for the United States and is still doing so in his current capacity. We went over, we spoke to not only members of law enforcement, but prosecutors and ultimately got all the, uh, they had faith in us to give us what we asked for. But we realized we weren't certain that they understood who we were. They knew we were in law enforcement, but one day they invited us out for a luncheon and we went to uh, one of their ports and were put on one of their big Navy vessels. We had a catered lunch on the deck. It was a beautiful day. Uh, they were all in their dress uniforms. Uh, they were really treating us like dignitaries. They took us out into the, uh, into the Pacific, showed us a great time out there. And as we come back, there were a couple other vessels that were waiting and they had their water cannons shooting. Uh, and we came under the water cannons and we had people stand and hold umbrellas over us. So I looked at Matt and I told him, I'm like, I don't think they really understand. We're just working guys. They, they think we're something special, but it was pretty cool anyway. So it took about a year of making mistakes to figure out exactly how to target. Uh, this was something that had never been done before. It was absolutely unprecedented. Working with the Kabul country office, DEA at that point started standing up what they called their fast teams, which was foreign advisory support team or the U.S. Navy SEALs uh, had a different name for it. They made fun of our FAST team, but it was a group of DEA agents who went through a lot of training to become a tactical team around the world. So DEA was standing that up around the same time. I was working with the Kabul country office, working with the office in Peshawar, Pakistan, Istanbul, Turkey, uh, Budapest, Romania, uh, Tokyo, Paris. So I finally devised with uh, Special Agent Jason Sandoval, who, who joined uh, the team about a year, 14 months after I got there, we came up with a plan. And that plan was to focus on three or four of the world's largest heroin traffickers and really make an investigation, make a case like we would in the United States, a big historical conspiracy, finding the players all around the world. And we worked that uh, for another three and a half years and became very successful with it. As I said, I was interviewing people all over Afghanistan and all over the world. And this name, Haji Bacho Ghul, kept coming up. And ultimately, I realized that he was, as I said before, the man in the shadows. Everyone was working for him. Anybody who had a name, a reputation in the drug world in Afghanistan, Pakistan, they honestly were working for Haji. You had said that the estimates were that 20 to 25 percent of the proceeds that he was receiving, that he was paying to these organizations. Why did he have to pay money to these organizations that, that we have deemed to be terrorist organizations? It made it easier for him to operate as a criminal in his country if he supported the Taliban, uh, the Haqqani Network and Al Qaeda rather than having to build a military force of his own to protect his heroin organization, he could rely on the terrorist organizations for protection and it became more cost effective for him to pay them rather than compete against them. And at the same time, 
he also wanted to commit jihad against the United States. That's some of the evidence that we're able to bring into court later. So if he was caring for these terrorist organizations and they were killing our personnel or, or other military personnel from around the world that were in Afghanistan, he was fine with that because in his eyes, we were an invading force and we were taking money uh, and food off of his table. Enemy of my enemy is my friend type thing. Yes. The vicarious results of that, that relationship. Yes, exactly. So I started traveling the world. All the leads that I came up with uh, took me around the world, interviewing different police agencies, working with different police agencies. I traveled back and forth to Afghanistan on a, a regular basis. I had my mission, my case, or cases. I was running a couple different cases at the time, but Bachagul case was by far the biggest. Some of the interesting things that occurred, uh, not only the, the travel from Dubai to Kabul, but uh, it was difficult for the U.S. Embassy to get cash, and they needed cash. Very difficult for them to get it. So just about every occasion that I would travel over there, I would travel with at least $50,000 in cash, upwards of $100,000. i am going all across the world with all this money in my backpack. Obviously, I can't carry a gun because I'm in other countries. I was on high alert uh, at all times while traveling, thinking that I was going to be kidnapped or, or robbed. Did they run out of targets to put on your back? or? <laughs> yeah. And they were big targets too. I, I had a lot of money on me. I had to, uh, DEA wasn't truly prepared for, uh, for doing this. I, we didn't have a, our internal bank at the special operations division because we'd never done anything like this. So I had had to travel to DEA headquarters, would pull 40 or $50,000 from DEA headquarters, and then would drive up to Baltimore pull money from the Baltimore office. Uh, we were pulling money from anywhere we could uh, to travel over to Afghanistan. Sometimes I would stop in different locations and drop a little bit here, a little bit there to help out other investigations. But most of the time it was going all the way through. The country of Dubai was very, or the United Arab Emirates was very helpful to us. Uh, when I started going over, things got tighter at the end, but I would take a lot of my equipment with me, no firearms, no ammunition, but a lot of equipment that I would need because, you know, I'm not going to U.S. city. I'm going to war. So I would take my equipment with me, would have several bags I'd travel with. And one day in my hotel in, in Dubai, I was going to be there for a few days interviewing some people in Dubai before getting to Afghanistan. I noticed there was a tracker that had been placed on my uh, my bag. So I thought, oh boy, I don't know if this is from a trafficking organization, if this is from the police. I have no idea what's going on. So I was always looking over my shoulder. Uh, and then my next trip, I was actually followed through the airport. Turned out it was by their security service who took me into a uh, room off the main thoroughfare in the airport. And I thought, oh, this is it. This is how it ends. You know, I'm, I'm not getting out of this one. I have no clue what's taking place. I'm by myself. Nobody knows I've been pulled into this room. Well, what I didn't realize is that country of Dubai had essentially outlawed bringing military equipment through their country. So they could have imprisoned me if they wanted to, because I violated their laws by having empty magazines for the, the pistol I'd be issued when I was over there, empty magazines for the machine gun, three or four knives that I'd attached to the body armor, all these things. They could have uh, imprisoned me, but they decided not to, thank <laughs> goodness. Uh, they held on to all of it while I was in the country and then gave it back to me just before I, I went over to Afghanistan. A very similar incident happened in Germany. I was uh, actually treated much in a much more rough manner by the Germans than I was by the Emiratis. The Germans were yelling and screaming at me in a room uh, because I had empty Glock magazines. They, uh, they were basically accusing me of trafficking weapons through their country and trying to explain to them, the person who was interviewing me did not speak English very well, trying to explain to them that I was a federal agent with the United States and these are not weapons, they're just empty magazines that I would fill up with ammunition when I was in Afghanistan. I didn't even have any bullets on me, no gun on me. It was getting pretty intense. I was in the room for about an hour when all of a sudden captain from the United Airlines flight somehow came into the room. I have no idea how he knew that I was in there and I was being debriefed in such a way, but he came in, he talked to somebody in, in German and took the bag full of my Glock magazines uh, and looked at me and said, they're going to release you in just a minute. I got a seat for you on the plane. Sure enough, they released me. He was able to get me in first class. And just before the flight took off, he came and dropped the bag full of Glock magazines in my, uh, my lap and said, sorry that they did that to you. Appreciate what you're doing for us. 
so some very interesting circumstances. Since I'm going down this road, uh, reminiscing on interesting times, myself and Special Agent Jason Sandoval were flying to Afghanistan on one one occasion. We had uh, we had just taken off from Dubai on I think it was Cam Air, another horrible airline <laughs> in which you know we we were praying the entire time that we would actually land uh, and not blow up. We were probably, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour into the flight. Smoke detectors and the plane started going off. I'm wide awake. Jason's asleep. And I thought, oh, dear God, we're going to die. This this plane's not going to make it. I'm either going to die of smoke inhalation. We're going to start plunging down and I'm going to die from being burnt up by fire. We're going to crash and I'm going to die. Or option number four could be worse. We've been in the air 45 minutes to an hour, which means we're over the country of Iran. I'm going to crash and live and be taken (laughs) hostage by the Iranians. So I woke up Jason. I was pretty frantic. I'm like, dude, we're going to die. We're going to die. He's like, couldn't you let me sleep through it? (laughs) Turns out that there was a group of Afghanis that were being deported from Dubai back to Afghanistan. They didn't know how to use our type of toilets. So in their, their attempt to use our toilets, they, they missed. So the bathroom was a disaster, an absolute disaster. <laughs> I'm trying to wrap my head around missing. In that part of the world, they, they just squat wherever they are. So they, they weren't accustomed to sitting on anything and having a hole underneath them. I got it. It's a cultural thing. Yes. So evidently they squatted and made a mess in the bathroom. And I guess the smell was so terrible that the flight attendants used a couple bottles of air freshener and the air freshener set off the smoke alarms. So we weren't in any danger or any more danger of crashing. But I thought you were going to say they lit a match there for a minute. <laughs> that's exactly what I thought he was going to say, too. <laughs> we were all pretty frantic thinking the plane was going down. So this case with Haji started coming together. At this point, we're probably two and a half years into the investigation. The FAST team um, had been developed. They would come into Afghanistan for three or four months at a time. I would travel over. I was going to Kabul every time, but I would stay in Kabul for a day or two, hand off whatever cash that I had uh, brought to the country. And then I would uh, either by helicopter or propeller plane fly to Nangahar province, uh, Jalalabad. And I would live there with members of the FAST team that were in, in country. And we would start doing uh, the investigation on Haji. We had developed sources and we were running those sources in. Probably a good time to, to mention Special Agent Vijay Namani, Special Agent Dick Ma, and Intel Agent Truvina Rock. They were all living in Afghanistan at the time, part of the Kabul country office. And when I would be in the United States putting the case together, getting it ready for court, they were running things on their end, did a really good job of developing sources and, and revealing people that we'd would not have known about otherwise. So very much a team effort. At the time, Keith Weiss was an ASAC. He oversaw what was happening in the country while I was back in the United States, putting things together and working with the attorneys. So I would deploy out to Jalalabad. We would live with special forces troops that were out there. They would laugh at us all the time because we were cops coming to war, trying to do a police officer's job in the middle of the war. But they, uh, they appreciated the fact that we were trying to do our job to, to help them and save their lives and reduce the, the funding to terrorism. So they provided us with security. We would go out on the streets in Jalalabad, which was uh, the Afghan version of the Old West. It was wild. Everybody's armed. The streets are wild. People everywhere. Traffic flow is, is non-existent. It's just uh, survival of the fittest. But we would go out, we would run our sources, and we were able to eventually find a source that was so good he could get into Haji's compound. Uh, He was Essentially, he was a teacher for some of Haji's children. He was not treated well and didn't like what was taking place, so he agreed to work with us. Uh, And just like running an, an operation here in the United States, we put a wire on him and ran him in, and he got good conversation with Haji that allowed us to solidify the case that we had built with the evidence from around the world. Eventually, not only got a 959, but a 960 charge on Haji. So I went to a grand jury in Washington, D.C., and we indicted Haji about two and a half years into the investigation. So after that, it turned into a capture operation. Well, Haji was well-connected and really wealthy. 
so when we started doing our operations, uh, well, there, there's a lot that I missed there. I apologize. We, we had some operations where we'd come in via helicopter. We invaded his, his compound. We seized a lot of evidence from his compound. We thought we'd be able to capture him that day, but somebody gave him a heads up and he, uh, he ran away and, and disappeared into the mountains before we could get to him. We also wanted to be able to prove the amount of heroin that he had moved around the world. And one way to do that was to get his books. Look at the financial side of this. Uh, financial investigation in Afghanistan or that part of the world is very different than how we would do it here in the United States to a degree. They don't use banks. They use the Hawala system. And the Hawala system is built on trust. So we had to shut down the Hawala market in Jalalabad, Afghanistan and do a search warrant on his Hawaladar. Would you like me to explain the Hawala method? To, to me, it's a lot like Bitcoin. It's not. It's more abstract than it is uh, concrete. Yes. It's built on trust. You have to have faith, a lot of uh, family connections, knowing who you're dealing with. But if I want to send money to you via Hawala, say deposit 100000 here locally, and then you being based on the other side of the country, Mike, you would pick it up at your local Hawala that money minus any fees. And then the Hawalas work it out together on how to transfer the money uh, back and forth. It's a cash-based system built on trust. So we had to stop the Hawala market in Jalalabad and do a search warrant on the Hawala that Haji used. We were able to take his records, take the books from the Hawala. And what we discovered was that there was nearly a billion dollars had gone through back and forth around the world. That's that's billion with a B, not, not an M, right? Yes, that's correct. Yep. We had to make records of, uh, you know, we're, we're going through doing things the way we do, documenting everything, making it very professional for court. When someone high-ranking in Kabul with the U.S. Embassy got a call from President Karzai, the Afghan president at the time, and the Afghan president uh, told us that we had to return the books to the Hualadar because essentially we had stopped the Afghan version of Wall Street. We had completely shut down the financial operations in Afghanistan. So it was all hands on deck. We used as many copiers as we could at the, at the embassy and back in the United States. And we made copies of everything and returned the books as quickly as we could so that we could continue having a, a friend in President Karzai. Well, this is a guy who's running a multi-billion dollar operation. He didn't use his real name on these ledgers, right? No. That's uh, that's incorrect. That he he never believed he would be touched, uh, especially by the Americans. Uh, there was no reason for him to to protect himself. Now, as advanced as he was running this operation around the world, the ledgers were clear that that was his money moving around the world. So, between raiding some of his uh, heroin producing compounds and then raiding the Hawaladar in Jalalabad, we were able to put together a really solid case. I went to grand jury in D.C., got him indicted on several counts, and then it turned into a capture operation. He was very elusive. He had connections all around the world, and he knew we were after him after the series of raids that we conducted, so he disappeared. We used our sources around the world, gathered information for well over a year. I put together capture operations in eight countries, and one was going to be a waterborne operation where if we got him, uh, we would get him out of Southwest Asia and onto a U.S. ship and bring him back. But we really didn't know where he was going to be at any night. Uh, so we had to be prepared that a foreign police agency or the CIA may call us and tell us, hey, this is where he's at. We had to go get him or someone else would get him and we'd bring him back to the United States. So you have to look back in, in our country's history. This is also the time in which the black sites were revealed that our intelligence agency had locations around the world in which they were taking people. And I won't say torturing, but they were using methods to gather information from people. And it was uh, really frowned upon when it hit the media that this is what was occurring. So we had to work even harder to convince foreign counterparts, uh, as well as other U.S. government agencies, that we were not part of these operations. This was a fully judicial operation. We had presented evidence in court. And when we captured him, we were going to bring him back to D.C. and, and put him in a U.S. court. There was nothing surreptitious about our operations in regards to his uh, prosecution. We went through a little bit of a, a quiet time getting information 
from around the world as to what was transpiring, where he may be. Uh, Special Agent Jeff Higgins, Tucker Coles, John Shannon. Uh, these folks were working diligently, as were the other people that I mentioned in different parts of the world. And ultimately, quite to our surprise, in the summer of 2009, we got a call from the Pakistanis and they had him. He had been not too far away from Afghanistan. The interesting thing here was he had so much money, he was friends with the Pakistanis. Something occurred, and we never figured out what occurred. Something occurred to turn him into their enemy as opposed to their their friend. So they called and offered him up to us. And it was a very dangerous operation getting him. We had no assurance that they were truly bringing our haji to the Torkham Gates, the, the largest land crossing between Afghanistan and Peshawar. A lot of terrorist activities occur there. We weren't sure if we were being set up. Um, by maybe one of the terrorist organizations because the intel community in, in Pakistan, unfortunately, uh, has a lot of connections with the terrorist organizations. So we weren't sure if it was a setup to bring American agents in so they could gun us down or what. So a lot of effort uh, by ASAC Keith Weiss went into planning that operation. But agents flew in, walked to the gates, were met by the Pakistanis. There was this tiny little man there with a bag over his head. They were able to get him and bring him back to the helicopter pulled the bag off his head and sure enough it was our haji now i saw on the uh, cnn uh, show where he's talking you know with this bag over his head you don't know if this guy is a suicide bomber i mean you have you have to go on faith alone that this is who they say it is right yes some very brave men uh conducted that operation lucky for us it worked out well but yeah a lot of faith so brought him back to kabul and i was waiting there to interview him since I had uh, myself and Special Agent Higgins had been the two who had uh, spent the most time working him, brought him back, brought him in, had a translator there for him, had a defense attorney there for him. We want to make sure everything was on the up and up. And essentially, he denied knowledge of any heroin. I believe he even said that he had never seen heroin in his life, had no knowledge of trafficking around the world. He was just as innocent as innocent could be. The interview didn't take long at all because he... He basically disavowed any relationship with any criminals of any sort. Was that like the cartel head version of those aren't my pants? Yeah, very much okay. so. Yes. Just, just to clarify. Yes, very it. much so. Big pair of pants, but yes, same, <laughs> uh, same thing. When the interview concluded, uh, we took a picture of him beforehand just so that we could show how he looked before the interview started. Took a picture. We were all in the picture with him. Took a picture afterwards to show that we had not harmed him in any way. And when the interview ended, I, uh, through the translator, told him, okay, you know, this didn't go as we as we hoped, but um, we're still bringing you to the United States. I'll, I'll see you in the United States pretty soon. I'll pick you up at Andrews Air Force Base, and I'll, I'll take you to jail in Washington, D.C. The translator passed that information on, and Haji laughed, and through the translator said back, my, my big American friend, you will, you'll never see me in the United States. He really believed that his political connections uh, in that part of the world were strong enough that he would not come to the U.S. But just a couple of weeks later, uh, he landed in Andrews Air Force Base, and I was waiting for him. Got him, uh, walked onto the plane. He had no idea where he was going. I walked onto the plane with my, my DEA jacket on, and he saw me, and his face just turned white. He realized he had just landed in the United States. Brought him off the plane, got him all handcuffed up, put him in my uh, DEA vehicle, and I took that opportunity. It was the evening. I took that opportunity to drive him around Washington, D.C. You know, we couldn't communicate. He didn't speak English. I drove him around and I showed him the Washington Monument, Lincoln Memorial, things like that. It was a quick drive, but I, I just wanted him to see that his efforts to destroy our country had failed, that we were still operating. Hmm. And then I took him to Central Lockup in D.C. And I have to tell you, I felt a little sorry for him at that time. He's a tiny little man controlling an incredible operation around the world. But there were some absolute predators that had been arrested and put in that jail that night. There were some big, scary men who were in lockup. And when I dropped him off and they, they put him in that cell, that big holding cell with probably 15, 20 other guys, he looked at me and he looked like a child in there with those people. Hmm. So we went to trial and ultimately we succeeded in getting three life sentences on Haji from the drug trafficking as well as the narco terror that we were able to prove. Just so our listeners understand the scope of this type of investigation that takes, you know, three and a half years to come to a, a conclusion, it's incredibly complex. 
and, and that had to be a very complex case. I, I hate to use the word to pretty up in order to be able to present in a court of law. The, the problem we as investigators run into is that we're intimately familiar with all the people involved in the case. But now you've got to explain to these people that know nothing about the case. And that had to be incredibly satisfying for you as the investigator when they understood it and they agreed with you and they convicted him. Very much so. And it actually, I'll, I'll correct you real quick. It was a four and a half wow. year investigation. Even though we didn't really hone in on Haji, his name popped up in the very first interview I did in Afghanistan, and I put him into DEA's system after returning back to the United States after my first trip to Afghanistan. So it was four and a half years that he was in our system before we were able to capture him and uh, go forward with trial. Incredibly complex trial, incredibly great U.S. prosecutors. Uh, I mentioned Matt Stiglitz once before. Julius Rothstein was the other prosecutor, and they did an amazing job. In fact, brave men, much to their, their wife's dismay, they agreed to come with us to Afghanistan one time. It was in January of 2008. They came to Afghanistan and spent a month with us interviewing witnesses in an old uh, home built by the Soviets. It had no heat. It gets very cold in Kabul in the wintertime. So we're sitting in this, this home with no heat, interviewing witnesses for... 10, 12, 14 hours a day for a month straight. There is no weekends when you're working in, uh, in Afghanistan or working in a war zone. So it was seven days a week that we were interviewing people, bringing them in from all over the, the country. Again, I can't thank the, the team, the Kabul country office and those that were involved. They would travel around using their sources to find these people that would, uh, would work with us. And then they would bring them in from all over the country. And then the uh, prepping for the trial, the security that we had to bring in to bring these witnesses to the United States. You know, Afghanistan is uh, is a country that is not nearly as advanced as the United States. So just getting the permission to bring them to the U.S., many of these people had no birth certificates. They had no idea how old they were. We had to work with other U.S. government agencies, and I appreciate the, the fact that they bent the rules for us at times to bring these people in. But then the security element, we had to make sure that even though they were cooperating witnesses, that they didn't run on us, disappear into U.S. society. So we had to have a lot of agents that were there with them, essentially babysitting them 24 hours a day to make sure that they would testify in court and then we could get them back to Afghanistan. We did relocate some to other countries because it was just too dangerous. The information they were providing us, if they went back to Afghanistan, they would have been killed. So very complex operation. Uh, that took you know four and a half years of investigating, but another another year prosecution. I was assigned during my career as a task force officer uh, with DEA Detroit, and my partner there was an agent named Sam Rahi. And uh, it, we happened to be sitting around the office one day, and we were talking, and all of a sudden he says something about this Phil guy, and I said Phil, said, yeah, Phil and I went to the academy together, and the more he starts talking about Phil, I'm like. Is his last name Kearney? And he looks at me, he's like, yeah. He goes, how do you know that? And he's like, we went to college together. And Sam and Phil had actually <laughs> gone uh, to training together. I, I bring that up because Sam and I worked a case uh, where one of the interdictions that we did, we stop a couple guys in Michigan and they've got over 800 grand in cash in a, a case behind the driver's seat. And of course they say, yeah, you know, it's a rental car. We, we, we didn't even see that thing back there. We don't know whose it is. I recently uh, did a, a class with one of our previous guests, Kyle Volwinkle. And Kyle uh, was uh, FBI HRT, uh, deployed many times, kind of like you had. Well, Kyle and I are over uh, at my house and we're talking about uh, different things. Well, it turns out that Kyle was involved in a mission here in Michigan where they had gone to serve a search and arrest warrant for an imam. And the imam ended up shooting and killing one of the canines. And there was an exchange of gunfire and he was uh, ultimately killed. But in the same indictment where he was indicted was his son. And his son happened to be one of the two guys that we had arrested with the over 800 grand in cash. And the whole thing behind that is I don't think people have a true understanding of how the illicit proceeds from criminal activity goes to fund other criminal activity and in a lot of cases terroristic activities that brings danger to Americans and other nationalities around the world. Yeah, you're exactly right. I've been out of this uh, for a while now, at least on the Afghan side, but I know that when I was 
in the midst of it, DEA could show that the largest revenue source for terrorist organizations around the world was drug trafficking. So I believe there are even a couple of commercials and public service announcements that went out in the, the late 2000s, encouraging U.S. citizens to not use drugs because they were supporting terrorism as a result. It had to be challenging, but both uh, satisfying also for you. When you're putting together a case here in the U.S., it, it's, it's you have to deal with other police agencies and that type thing, and, and it can be uh, troublesome at times. But you're dealing with entities from around the world. And to be able to bring all that together and put it in that cohesive package, you not only impacted American life, but you had impact on the quality of life from people around the world. And there are very few people that can say that they've had a global impact and you have. Well, never anticipated being in that position or doing those things. And honestly, I just learned the skills that uh, that I developed in the prison in Florida, streets of Salt Lake City what my parents had taught me, what my coaches at Liberty, professors at Liberty, living up to our word, not over-promising, telling these other countries that we're there to help, showing them what our laws would allow, and gaining friends in these other countries uh, with other police officers. Uh, and it worked out quite well. We were received really well by other countries. There may have been a time in which we had to prove ourselves. We had to do that in France one time another investigation of another very high level drug trafficker. The French had seized 500 kilos of heroin. We believed it came back to this trafficker, Haji Juma Khan, myself and Jason Sandoval went to France on a mission to convince them to give us a representative sample of the heroin, bring it back to the United States, have it tested in our DA lab and see if it matched the heroin that we had already previously seized that we knew came from his organization. We had only intended on being in Paris for a couple of days, but it turned out we were there closer to uh, to ten days because we would interview or would have an inter would be interviewed by a member of their police agency, their national police agency. The next day, they'd bring someone else in. We just kept having to prove ourselves over and over again. And in the end, finally, they agreed. We went back to the U.S. A couple of weeks later, we received our representative sample. We had asked for a couple ounces. They sent us five kilos wow. of heroin. But sure enough, our DA labs tested it, and it, it was a perfect match for what we had already seized uh, from Jumacon. So it was building those relationships around the world. It was cop to cop, just like uh, you know, someone from Flint, Michigan may drive over to Detroit and, and build those relationships. It was the same. It was just on an international level. It was a, a lot more traveling and bad airlines involved with yours, so. <laughs> though. There was definitely bad airlines going to Afghanistan. My travel to the other countries was, was a lot of fun. Uh, going to the places that were safer, working with the National Police Forces, that was, that was a good time. Uh, the biggest issue was, you know, I, I left my family. I was essentially gone for four, four and a half years, and it was, uh, it was quite difficult uh, being away from, from everybody. I was happy to do it because um, I was never in the military and I have a very long history of military service in my family. I wanted to go in the military after leaving Liberty, but my, my football injuries made me, rendered me ineligible for military service. So being able to go serve my country in this way and protect our military was something I was very proud of and happy to do. But after four years of it, it just became too much and I asked for a transfer, got that transfer about six months later. and went up to the, the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa, Canada, and started doing the same investigations in Canada. That's when I uh, came down to Detroit and saw you and Sam, worked with the Canadian police forces and did 959 cases that connected the U.S. and Canada and, and Canada to Europe. So learned a lot from my time working at the Special Operations Division and, and carried that into the next phases of my career. As we're wrapping things up here, I, I just want to point out to our listeners uh, that this case was uh, it was highlighted by CNN on um, a declassified uh, untold stories of American spies uh, episode, which we'll try to include the link in our show notes. Uh, you also personally were featured in the Liberty Journal, something I'm jealous of, never been featured in the Liberty Journal. I did make one of the yearbooks one time when I was a student there, but I have not been featured in the Liberty Journal Come on, Liberty Journal. He is the host of a almost award-winning <laughs> podcast. We've we never been nominated, but I'm sure if we were nominated, we'd at least be considered. Just say it. Uh, as we wrap things up, I, I, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for your service because, again, 
being able to say that you have made the type of impact that you have is something that that good people should aspire to. And, and I always tell people, you listen, we may not be able to change the world, uh, but if we work hard and we do the right things, we can change our world. But you've actually changed the world. So thank you for what you did. Thank you for your service. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And I will conclude with it was a team of people. I've mentioned their names. I'm sure I've failed to mention some, and I apologize to them for that, but it was a team of folks who did it. I'm very proud to have been a part of it. Point out something here as we as we close. Several times throughout this episode, and right there at the very end, he talked about the team, and, and he talked about some brave men that carried out some of these operations, but he never took credit for the bravery and courage that he showed. Uh, throughout this. Uh, it had to be incredibly dangerous and he downplays his his exposure to that danger. Uh, but I, I think that uh, we have to say that he's one of the bravest people we've had on so far. Yeah. And I encourage folks, we'll put links in, in the show notes, uh, read up more about this whole case because it's it's very detailed. There are a lot of facets that we couldn't get into today just to realize how much uh, danger these folks were in and the situations they had to go through. Uh, really, Go back and watch the CNN special, read some of the articles. It's really intriguing and, again, just a fascinating case all around. We'll have all that stuff for you right there in the show notes at Between the Lines of VirtualAcademy.com. But a great guest today. Thank you so much, Phil, for uh, you know recounting your story, and thank you for your service. Certainly. Thank you, gentlemen. 